Exodus 34, verse 27. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. There are 800,000 words in the English language. The average person will use about 60,000 words in a lifetime. They have a working vocabulary of around 7,000 words. In a single day, a person will use, oh, 18,000 words, give or take a few. That's enough words to fill 54 pages of type. In a year, the average person speaks a little over six and a half million words. That's enough words to fill 132 books of 400 pages each. Words, words, words. We're constantly using words. Linguists say that of the four major languages, English is the most difficult to learn. I mean, try learning a language where fat chance and slim chance mean the same. Did you know in the English language, the three most difficult words to pronounce are, I was wrong. <laughs> Hard to get those words out. The two sneakiest words are, plus tax. The two most pleasant words, check enclosed. And the longest word in the English language is the word smiles. For if you look closely, you'll find there's a mile between the two S's. Well, this morning we're talking about words. But what exactly is a word? You see, a word is an agreed-upon symbol. It's an emblem made up of prearranged letters that represent an object or an idea. Humans string together these symbols to express thoughts and to communicate with one another. We use words to produce language. You see, words are the apparel in which we dress our thoughts before they leave the home of our minds. It's been humorously said, language is a wonderful thing. It can be used to express thoughts or conceal thoughts or sometimes even replace thinking. At times it's easier to just talk than it is to think. The problem, though, with symbols is that they can be misinterpreted. If you don't believe me, just watch a third base coach as he's flashing all those signs to the guy at home plate. I mean, his flurry of symbols can be confusing. And this is also true of words. Words can be misunderstood. For example, take the word box, the plural of which is boxes. But the plural of ox is oxen, not oxes. One fowl is a goose, and two are called geese. But the plural of mouse is never meese. You may find a lone mouse or a whole nest of mice, but the plural of house is houses, not heise. If the plural of man is men, why shouldn't the plural of pan be pen? 
If I speak of a foot and you show me two feet, why shouldn't a pair of boots be called beet? If one is a tooth and a whole set are teeth, why shouldn't the plural of booth be beef? Then the masculine pronouns are he, his, and him, but imagine the feminine as she, shiz, and shim. <laughs> you get my point. I mean, language can be confusing. One of the problems with words is their multiple meanings. One word can have many different definitions. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, on the average, each of the 500 most frequently used English words have 23 distinct definitions. For example, the word round, R-O-U-N-D, has 70 different meanings. Thus, to grasp the true meaning of a word, that word has to be examined in its proper context. And this is especially true when it comes to God's words. All too often people take verses out of context and they use them to express what God never intended. Reminds me of the man who was in serious trouble. In desperation, he opened his Bible for guidance. But you see, the man had never really read his Bible before and so he didn't know his way around so he decided to just play Bible roulette. He just would thumb through the pages and he'd just stick his finger right down on a verse and read it. Well, the first verse he read was Job chapter 3, verse 1. He cursed the day of his birth. Well, that wasn't very encouraging. So he tried it again. This time his finger came down on Matthew 27, verse 5. He went out and hanged himself. <laughs> now the guy's really depressed. And so he decides to give it one final try. This time, his finger points to John 13, verse 27. What you do, do quickly. <laughs> I'm saying it can be dangerous to just open the Bible and pull different scriptures out of context. It's been accurately stated, a proof text without context is often a pretext. The London Daily Telegraph reports of a high-tech British company who devised a computer program that translated English into Russian. A Bible verse was fed into the computer, Matthew 26, verse 41, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The translation came out, the whiskey is agreeable, but the meat has gone bad. <laughs> I mean, words are the symbols that make language and communication possible but words can be misused and misunderstood and misinterpreted and mistranslated. There are times when words alone don't always communicate the message that the author intends. Often, you can read words and study them and memorize them and even treasure them, yet that doesn't always ensure that you've accurately understood their meanings. You see, this was the problem with the Jews of Paul's day. In Romans 2, verses 17 to 23, he writes, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. I mean, they were so confident that they knew the Bible that they made themselves teachers. Paul says, but 
You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? I mean, the Jews took such pride in their knowledge of the words. They could quote the words, the verses. They had them memorized and categorized, but they never truly grasped their meaning. The Jews knew the words per se, but they missed out on God's intention and the verse's full meaning. This is why God told Moses, here in Exodus 34, verse 27, that he was making a covenant with his people Israel, not just according to these words, but according to the tenor of these words. This Hebrew word translated tenor, it means the puff or the air or the essence behind the word. The implication is the original meaning or the intent of the word. God was making a covenant with his people, not just according to the words alone, but his covenant was based on the intent behind the words. Here's Exodus 34 verse 27 in the Amplified Bible. It says, write these words for after the purpose and character of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. You see, God wanted Israel to remember that his covenant wasn't just with the letter of the law, with the words alone. No, they were accountable to God for what he intended by the words that he had uttered. God didn't want the Jewish people to simply write the words and reverence the words and memorialize the words, then forget the meaning behind those words. He didn't want them to lose touch with the intent of the law. So what if you post the Ten Commandments on your wall if you never read them and understood them and are living them out in your life? For most of their history, the Jews were never in serious danger of losing the letter of the law. The two stone tablets on which God wrote the Ten Commandments were taken by Moses and they were placed in the Ark of the Covenant for their safekeeping. These tablets were national treasures for Israel. Men fought wars. They laid down their lives to protect God's words. In Romans chapter 3, Paul commends the Jews for having been faithful custodians of the sacred scriptures. But though the Jews were careful to protect the letter of the law, they were not as diligent to preserve the tenor of the law. You see, it's easier to hold on to a page than it is to remember a purpose. The Jews kept a tight grip on the sheet music, but over time, they forgot the tune. It's amazing how the intent of something that can be so clear at the time it was first spoken and heard, yet later down the line, the original motivation can become lost. Like the kid who leaves to go on a fishing trip. He goes down to the lake to go fishing. And before he leaves, his mom tells him, he says, under no circumstances are you to swim. But when the boy gets to the lake, he starts to rationalize. Well, mom said no swimming, but she didn't say anything about wading or walking in the water. She didn't say anything about that. And before you know it, he's waist deep. 
You see, it's amazing how legalistic kids can get when it's convenient. Here's my point. Often it's easier to uphold the letter of the law than it is to keep the spirit of the law. I read of a man named Terry Allen, age 34. He was arrested in San Antonio, Texas on charges of breaking and entering. He was caught red-handed removing the burglar bars from the window of a beauty salon. Yet Allen told the judge that he was guilty of simple theft, not the more serious crime of breaking and entering. Mr. Allen said that he had no intention of entering the salon. All he wanted was the burglar bars. The thief was worried about the crime in his neighborhood, and he wanted the burglar bars to go over his own windows back home. Well, the judge didn't buy it, and neither does God. When God called Israel to be his people, he didn't sign a contract with them. He proposed a covenant. You see, a contract is a legal transaction. It's a paper you sign and you stick in your safe deposit box and you refer to it occasionally. A covenant, though, is more. It's more than a contract. It's a sacred trust between two people. When you get married, you don't just sign a contract. You enter into a covenant with another person. What matters in the contract are the words, the legalese. The wording has to be just right. But what matters in a covenant is the commitment that those words express. A covenant implies the intention to walk together and to do whatever it takes to love one another. A contract simply cuts a deal. A covenant guides a relationship. And God wanted a covenant with His people Israel. He wanted more than just words. He wanted a relationship. You see, you can lose the letter of the law through sloth or through neglect. In fact, I once lost my Bible when I laid it up on the roof of my car and drove off. Blew off on the way home. But you see, you lose the spirit of the law by drifting from the person who gave it to you in the first place. When the law stops being a reflection of that relationship and it becomes nothing but words... It loses its meaning. Like that kid who went swimming. While he was with his mother, it was crystal clear what she intended. But once there was some distance between them, the boy stopped taking her words personally as her words. They were only terms to twist and to work around. And this is what's happened in the United States of America today. Our Constitution was never intended by its framers to be interpreted in a way that allows for the murder of unborn babies and alters the very nature of marriage. The First Amendment was never intended to provide for a license for pornography or to keep any mention of God out of our schools and public institutions. If our founding fathers saw how the Constitution is being interpreted today, they'd roll over in their graves. You can go to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. to see the original letter of the law. But sadly, our country has forgotten its tenor or the spirit of the law. And this is what happened to God's law in the life of the nation Israel. By the time of Jesus, the Jews had gotten so out of touch with the lawgiver, so much distance had developed between them and God, that they were interpreting the laws in ways that God never intended. Jesus called the perpetrators blind guides. The Pharisees had interpreted the law in a way that made it convenient for them to keep 
instead of interpreting it in accordance with the tenor of its words. Understand, when men lose touch with the spirit of the law, they make two mistakes with the letter of the law. First, they often go beyond its original intention. They read into the law more than God had planned. They add to it man-made traditions and trappings. This was the issue in Matthew 23 verse 4 when Jesus said of the Jews, they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. You see, nowhere was this more apparent than in the laws concerning the Sabbath day. The fourth of the commandments was simple. Just keep the day holy. It was issued with few stipulations. God left it up to us to work it out according to the tenor of the law. But over time, the tenor of the law was substituted with the traditions of man. The Pharisees concocted 70 detailed stipulations that they attached to the fourth commandment. Exodus 20 verse 10 said that on the Sabbath day you should do no work. But what constitutes work? Well, the Pharisees said that if you pinned two letters of the alphabet, it was considered work. They said if you aided in someone's healing, it was considered work. Now, if the person was bleeding out or if they had a heart attack, you could keep them from getting worse, but you couldn't do anything to make them better. Healing had to wait till Monday. The Pharisees also assumed that work must certainly include carrying a burden. But what was a burden? Well, they said that to lift a child or to strap on your artificial leg was carrying a burden. These were both burden-bearing activities. According to the Pharisees, you couldn't even wear your false teeth into the synagogue on the Sabbath day without it being work and a violation of the law. In Matthew 15, verse 6, Jesus said concerning these Sabbath restrictions, He said, Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Religion had altered the true intent of God's law. You see, the purpose of the Sabbath was to provide mankind with a day to rest and to worship. It was a blessing. It was an oasis in a weekly wilderness. God meant for the Sabbath to be a hammock, but instead the Jews had turned it into a treadmill. God devised the Sabbath law to bless and to serve mankind, but the way the Jews interpreted it turned, it, turned us into its slaves. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. And Christians today need to be careful that we don't make the same mistake with the words of the New Testament. We take commandments like Hebrews 10 verse 25, do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And we attach all kinds of stipulations to that word forsake. Well, you can miss one Sunday a month, but if you miss two Sundays, you're forsaken, man. That means you're forsaken. Or someone reads in Titus chapter 2, verse 5, where the younger women are supposed to be keepers at home, and we conclude that a mother should never work an outside job. Well, the Bible also states that a husband is supposed to go out into the world and provide for his family. Does that mean he can never help with the housework? I tried that interpretation. <laughs> My wife didn't really buy it. 
or we read, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And immediately we start telling other believers where and when and how much they should be giving to God. In other words, we take a helpful word and we turn it into a shackle. You see, the New Testament is full of important principles, but don't turn spiritual principles into rigid laws. It's not for us to dictate how all God's commands should be carried out. Yes, we should obey God's Word, but how we obey depends on the Holy Spirit's application to our lives. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come and would guide us into all truth and apply the Scriptures according to our own individual growth and to our personal circumstances. Sometimes it's easier for us just to lay down the law Whereas God wants us to tune in to the tenor of his words. In many ways, the Pharisees went beyond the intent of the law. But the second mistake people make when they lose touch with the spirit or the tenor of the law is they fall short of the law's true intent. And this also happened to the Pharisees. Not only did they go beyond the law's demands, they fell short of them. They recognized only the law's surface meaning. They accepted it in a literal sense, but they went no further. This is what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the letter of the law read, you shall not murder. But Jesus said that the spirit of the law included, don't hate. Since hatred is the seed from which murder grows. The law was about attitude as well as action. The same was true with sexual sin. The letter of the law said, you shall not commit adultery. But the tenor, the spirit of the law included, don't even lust after a woman. For according to Jesus, keeping the law involved our hearts as well as our hands. Attitude, not just action. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 25 and 26, He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. You see, the Jews had ignored the inner attitude. And this is why they had become so self-righteous. They obeyed the outward requirements but fell short of any inward purity. And again, we as Christians can follow in their pharisaical footsteps. You see, Christianity is more than just following outward rules. It's the desire of a heart. If righteousness is nothing more than outward compliance, we'll become self-righteous. But when we seek an inward purity, the Holy Spirit comes to our aid. Don't just conform your conduct to the letter of the law. Seek to be transformed by the Spirit of the law. I love Matthew 5 verse 20. Jesus said, Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That statement must have jarred the people who first heard it. For no one was more righteous than the Pharisees. And yet theirs was an outward, ornamental kind of righteousness. It didn't seep down to the roots. Jesus is saying to enter God's kingdom, it's not enough to just keep the letter of the law. You must also tune your heart to the tenor of His words. In the same passage, Jesus said that He didn't come to change or destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. 
And by his words and deeds, by his miracles and his mercies, Jesus reminded us of the tenor of these words. In one sense, Jesus didn't say anything new. But in another sense, everything he said was new. He came humming the tune that the Jews had forgotten. The Jews had the sheet music, but Jesus sang the melody. Hearing Jesus talk about the law, talk about God, was like going to a live concert when all you had ever heard before was the band on a CD. It was like going to a college football game when for years you'd only stayed at home and watched it on television. When people heard Jesus talk and watched Jesus walk, they saw the spirit the words had, been me had meant to convey. They understood what God had meant all along. And it was nothing like what they had thought. Having lost the tenor of the law, they turned the law into a collection of archaic rituals. But what the life of Jesus demonstrated was an attractive righteousness. Once there was a king who dreamed he'd lost all his teeth. He called for the wise men of the land to interpret his dream. Well, the first wise guy, he came in with a big frown on his face. He told the king that all his relatives would die and he'd be left alone. Well, the king didn't like the wise man's interpretation, so he had him executed in front of the royal court. But the second wise guy, he stood before the king with a big smile on his face. He explained that the dream meant that the king would live a long life and outlive all his relatives. Well, the king liked his interpretation, and the wise man was richly rewarded. Ironically, both men said the same thing. But it was the way that they said it. And this was true of our Lord Jesus. Jesus repeated what the Old Testament prophets had written, but it was the way he said it. The song of God that the Jews sang had become a dirge. Something like this. I mean, it was tiresome, and it was boring, and it was stifling, and it had become irrelevant. And I'm, there you go. But Jesus sang the same words, but, but it was something like this. It was the same lyrics, but it was to a different beat. The way Jesus played it, it made you want to clap and tap your toes and sing along. The lyrics didn't change, but the tune was brand new. Jesus lived free from petty religious details and legalistic restraints, and yet the life he lived seemed so much pure, so much holier. Jesus was the embodiment of joy. Jesus sung the same song to a happier, holier, healthier tune. Hey, when the words of God's covenant were no longer clear, God sent his word made flesh to show us what he meant all along. Jesus revealed the law's true intent. And above all, the characteristic that most sharply separated Jesus from the Pharisees, it was love. You see, the tenor of the law, its spirit, its overarching intention is love. You remember in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And you remember his reply, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. In short, this is the whole enchilada. I mean, here's the entirety of God's law. Love him with all you got and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, all those boring laws you read about in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I mean, what you should do if your ox gores your neighbor's ox, they were all teaching an agrarian society how to love their neighbor. Today, the same rules might apply to what happens when your Ford Taurus gores your neighbor's Ford Taurus. I mean, how do we apply love? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, but they weren't just ten rules. God's top ten consisted of two tables of five commandments each. The first five teach us how to love God, and the second five, how to love each other. But the commandments were all about love for God and for others. You see, love is the essence of law. The spirit of the law is love. Love is the tenor of these words. The sad trajectory of Jewish history demonstrates that the further the people got from God, the more difficult it was for them to hear the tune, this love song of God. By the time of Christ, the song was completely lost. They no longer loved God nor loved their neighbor. You recall the story that Jesus told about the man mugged on the road to Jericho? It was the non-Jew, a Samaritan, who showed him more love than either the priest or the Levite. The two religious Jews were pictures of outward piety, but they had no love. Jesus was showing, showing us that mere religion had missed the point. The Jews took the law of love and they turned it into a loveless religion. In fact, the Jews had become so tone deaf, they accused Jesus, the man with perfect pitch, of singing off-key. Imagine me, Pastor Sandy, a guy who's completely tone deaf, who can't carry a tune in a bucket, accusing our worship team of sounding a little pitchy. Jesus sang notes that people had never heard. The Jews of the first century, they were so used to singing flat, they didn't appreciate Jesus' heavenly harmonies. This is why they became so jealous of him. At first, they tried to censure his music, but when he kept singing, they tried to silence him forever. They crucified him. On a dark hill called Calvary, the music died. But three days later, Jesus was back on tour. The Father resurrected the singer and re-released the music. And Jesus is still singing today through the voice of his disciples. You know, actually, if we probe deeper into this, we'd find that the Jews didn't lose the tune. They never really had it in the first place. They never actually possessed the love of God. You see, this is not only true of Jews, it's true of all people. It's true of you, it's true of me. The human tendency is, is selfishness. The human heart is naturally selfish. We're born sinners. Love is what we lack. Our tendency is greed and self-centeredness. From the day we're born, we're greedy little grabbers. If you don't believe me, just spend a Friday night at the Chuck E. Cheese. You'll see it. Those kids aren't taught by their parents to behave that way. 
It comes by nature. They're naturally sinners. Watch how loving those kids are at Chuck E. Cheese. There's a reason they hire an off-duty police officer. This is why if singing the song is living in love, then without Christ, none of us can carry a tune. I'm not the only one who can't sing. You can't either. It's only when we meet Jesus that we hear how the song should really be sung and we realize how pitchy and off-key and tone-deaf we actually are. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 speaks of a new covenant in contrast to this Old Testament law. God promises believers, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now think about this. What if God was willing to surgically remove my larynx and replace it with Bruno Mars's vocal cords? How cool would that be? And yet according to Jeremiah, God has done a greater miracle in each one of us who is in Christ. He has taken out that old selfish, loveless nature and he's replaced it with a desire to love. On the cross, Jesus paid for a heart transplant and I receive it when I give my life to him. Now that I'm in Christ, my heart sings a different tune. I march to a different drummer. No longer selfishness and greed, but love for God and love for my brother is my song. I now have an ear for the music. Now, on occasion, I might still sing flat, but at least I know I'm off key. Through the work of Christ, I can now sing the melody. My heart has been tuned to love. Jesus is in me, living out his life, singing his song. It's exciting that once a man's heart is in tune and in sync with the tenor of the law, there's no longer any need for the letter of the law. I mean, if a musician can play by ear, the sheet music only gets in his way. And this is why Jesus sets us free from the letter of the law. We're now in possession of its tenor, its spirit. When Jesus changes a person's heart, love comes naturally. As we get to know Jesus, we'll want to obey. You remember in high school while you were busting your buns every night, studying hard just to pull down passing grades? There were a couple of really smart kids in the class who got straight A's without even trying. You remember those kids? How jealous you were? How envious you were, how they made it look so easy you couldn't stand it. Well, now, as a Christian, you're one of those kids. God has put his love in your heart. Galatians 5 verse 22 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love. You're the one who now loves God and loves others without even trying. God has put it in your heart. This, my friends, is the Christian gospel. We're under a new covenant. Jesus has done the heavy lifting. It's not up to us to affect the changes we desire. We trust Jesus and he changes us from the inside out. Jesus etches his law into our spirit. He puts his song in our hearts. And yet many Christians fail to grasp this concept they live as if they're under the old covenant, as if it's all up to them. They're laboring to play the sheet music rather than listening for the song in their hearts. We need to trust the Lord. If we trust Him, we'll hear His song rise up within us. 
We need to continue in his love and his patience and his kindness. Rather than lay down the law, God wants a Christian to live by the tenor or the spirit of his words. The Christian is motivated by love. I once had a basketball coach who expected perfection from his players. No one satisfied him because none of his players were perfect, especially me. And as a result, we played tense and tight and, quite frankly, terrible. We were overcoached. He trusted in his patterns, in his plays, rather than in his players. And this is the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion relies on the patterns and the plays, the rituals and the rules. It overcoaches, whereas Christianity changes our hearts. God puts his spirit within us and he allows us to live out his love. Imperfectly, yes, but passionately and authentically. We hear his song and then we sing it with all of our hearts. I want to close this morning by making a radical statement. Just being a Bible-believing Christian is not enough. So you've got a Bible. So you've got the lyrics to the song you should be singing. So you've got the sheet music. But now you need God's Spirit to put the melody in your heart. This is why God told Moses, according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And it is according to the tenor of his law and love that God wants to make his covenant with us. Now here's the bottom line. You and Jesus can make some beautiful music together if you'll learn to live according to the tenor of his words. If you'll trust his spirit to fill your heart with his love.